right, let's begin. It's Sunday, June 25th, 2023. I want to welcome you all to our Sheepgate Fellowship Sunday service. It's a pleasure. Uh, it's an honor to be with all of you, but most importantly, it is an honor to be before the Lord, together with the saints, gathered together on the Lord's Day to worship Him. Uh, look outside, it's beautiful. It's very hot, though, uh, so hopefully you're finding a way to stay cool. Uh, but we are grateful uh, for not just the weather, but of course, primarily, God, His grace, His mercy, and His Son. So grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, as we gather together as believers Let's declare it together with one voice what we do believe. Let's rise from our seats and recite together the Apostles' Creed. It's on the screen for those who do need it. Let's recite it together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. As we begin our time, um, as we are invited to God's sanctuary, to worship our Holy Father. I'd like to call you to worship from Psalm 43, verses 3 to 4. Listen carefully to what the psalmist has written for us. If it helps, you can certainly close your eyes and uh, remove distraction to focus. If there's no distraction, you can certainly keep your eyes open. But this is the psalmist in Psalm 43. It reads, Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. There's two parts to this psalm that you should focus on. Verse 3, it says, send out your light and your truth. A focus on light and truth. For those of you who are uh, readers of the Gospel of John would be firmly uh, understanding of what this means. Light in the darkness, the way, the truth, and the life, right? Of course, from a New Testament perspective, we see the light and we see the truth as Jesus Christ. And the psalmist's petition is that the light and truth would lead him to his holy hill, to God's holy hill, and to his dwelling place. I hope that this, that, that is a petition upon your heart this day as we gather together in the Lord's sanctuary. And then this fourth verse, then I will go to the altar of God. In rec- after being led by light and truth, being brought to the holy hill and to the dwelling place of the Lord, there is then a response, right? So many times I've spoken to uh, praise teams and worship teams about how our theology leads to a doxology, right? That our understanding of God, our knowledge of God leads to an adoration of God. It leads to a natural praise of Him. And so we see this in the psalmist, right? The light and the truth leads Him to the altar of God. He goes, and what he finds there is exceeding joy, right? Just overwhelming joy. He says, I will praise you. I hope that this is something you experience this day, that your knowledge and love of God and your understanding of him have led you here, and he has led you here, and that you will thus respond, right, in exceeding joy at the altar of God with worship. 
Let's take this time to pray as we start. One prayer that I ask you to pray at this time is a prayer of confession of sin. For we are sinners and we are in constant need of repentance. And it is required of us, of course, as believers to be in not just recognition of the sin of our lives, but to be in repentance of the sin of our lives. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May this be a prayer upon your lips at this time as we confess together the unholiness of our hearts, but also the grace and mercy of Christ Jesus who died for us. So let us pray and we'll begin. All this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Be assured, brother and sister, for your pardon is certain. Proverbs 28, 13. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. And of course, the source of that compassion, or the visible source, if you will, is of course the Lord Jesus Christ, who came, was sent by the Father to die on the cross in accordance with his will, on behalf of our sin, as an atonement and a sacrifice once for all, pay the price of, de- of, of your sin, death itself. And he conquered that, he conquered the grave in his resurrection and through it. So we, our union with him is union with him in his glory. And one day we will be resurrected as well into heaven's glory. Brothers and sisters, I'd like to draw your attention to the screen, to the Heidelberg Catechism question number six. The question asks, did God then create man so wicked and perverse? So we talked about the law what it requires, loving God, loving neighbor. We talked about how we cannot keep this law, that we are incapable of such things. Question six asks then, well, is God to blame for this, that he created us in wickedness and in perversity in, in our nature? No, the answer reads, on the contrary, God created man good. We see this in Genesis 1 and 2. And in his image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness, so that he might rightly know God, his creator, heartily love him and live with him in eternal blessedness to praise and glorify him. It's the initial, right, the initial uh, image that we uh, bore in our creation. But of course, because of Adam and Eve's sin, and we'll get to that in the, in the coming questions, that is not the case at this moment. Uh, so let's be reminded of God's goodness and his design of goodness itself in all of creation. Brothers and sisters, allow me to pray before we begin this time of praise before we go into a time of singing. Let us settle our hearts and focus our minds on the Lord. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Gracious God, we thank you so much. Yesterday, we got to experience together as a church, for many of us, um, a witness of a marriage and a wonderful wedding ceremony where we saw two people that you created uh, come together in union uh, to start a lifelong journey as, uh, as a couple and as one flesh. 
Well, when we look to scripture, we see a marriage in the beginning of the Bible. We see a marriage between a man and a woman. And we see, unfortunately, their fall. But at the very end, and at the very last pages of scripture, we also see another marriage, but a greater marriage. A marriage that perhaps all marriages point towards, the perfect one, the marriage of Christ and his church. God, thank you for dying for us, community of believers, the elect, and the saints. Thank you for preserving us and holding fast to us even when we are so unfaithful and so ungrateful to you. Thank you for having grace and compassion upon us when we are so inconsiderate of you. In Hosea 1, we are taught that we are like that of the prostitute who prostitutes and cheats in adultery against their partners, their covenant partners, constantly and consistently, and we are no different. We lust ourselves and throw ourselves to temptations and things that are not of you and are not you. And we treat them as if they are so pleasurable. And we treat them as sources of such great excitement and such wicked pleasure that we turn our sights away from you instead of upon you. Help us, O Lord, to have our hearts transformed. Many Reformed scholars have noted that our heart is in need of a transplant. That we need a complete overhaul of our entire condition and being. Thank you for regenerating us and allowing us to see the goodness, the grace, and the mercy of Christ Jesus. In this day, Lord, as we come together as believers, as we do each week, we lift songs to you, but we do not do so with a mundane attitude, but rather with an eagerness and a yearning to see your kingdom and name glorified. We truly lift you, O Lord. We ask that this day would be a time as we go into your word of learning, of great teaching, and hopefully that very thing we desired, just like this psalmist, that we would come to the holy hill in your dwelling place, to the altar of God, and find exceeding joy in what we learn and what we hope to gain as a benefit from you. We thank you so much for everything in your son, and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's rise from our seats and sing together.
continuing our sermon series in the gospel of mark we're in mark 7 verse 14 last week we looked at the first 13 verses of the seventh chapter of course uh for those of you who were here or were able to hear perhaps the sermon uh if you weren't here uh we looked at of course the traditions of men the traditions of the elders of the jewish tradition that was presented before jesus as the disciples were eating bread without cleaning their hands and so it was viewed as unclean in the eyes of the Pharisees, and they come to Jesus, and they question him, kind of in a rebuking tone, really. And, of course, Jesus rebukes them back, quoting Isaiah, and speaking of, of course, that, uh, or speaking to them, of course, especially in verse 8, that they are neglecting the commandments of God, and instead they hold to the traditions of men. And, uh, of course, we discussed uh, why that's problematic. And, of course, the warning to us was that we could fall into the same trap, right? That we could take traditions that we hold to and have created as men, um, and then we create doctrines or create doctrines out of them, right? It's problematic because, of course, um, Jesus speaks against that. Here in chapter 7, uh, verse 14, the conversation continues, but Jesus uh, directs his attention to the crowd, and he speaks directly to them, teaching them an important parable. So let's read it together. Mark 7, verses 14 to 23. If you have a Bible, please open to it um, or open it up and follow with me. The word of God. This is the word of God. After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him, because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and is eliminated? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, Proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Amen. The word of God. 
Our sermon is entitled, Out of the Heart of Men. And of course, I just kind of stole it from scripture there. Um, just thought it was just a, a wise word uh, from the text, really getting at the heart, pun intended, of what we intend to learn from today's text. After being questioned by the Pharisees regarding the so-called unclean hands of the disciples before eating, Jesus returned the question or the questioning back to the Pharisees regarding their unclean judgments based on what we discussed last week, man-made rituals and traditions rather than on the true commandments of God. Now, of course, if the disciples had done something against the commandments of God, I don't really think that Jesus would have too much of an issue, right? But not only were they approaching it with a legalistic attitude, their premise of that which was correct was stemming from simply their man-made traditions. They took that which they created, the traditions, and placed it on the same level as God. No different was the temptation offered to Eve in the garden before she took the forbidden fruit and ate. For she too sought to be like God, thinking she could attain such a status. Nor was it different for Lucifer when he fell from heaven. His fall came from his own desire to supplant God as an equal or even as superior to him. Nor was it different when men gathered and built the Tower of Babel, a monument to their pride and arrogance and thinking their technology could equate to the heavens. Thus is the reality, brothers and sisters, that generation after generation of mankind, no matter the warning, man not only hopes to be God, but they seek after it and pursue it. And it comes in many fashions and forms. In today's world, perhaps a little more subtle, but it's there if you, if you look for it. And in this era of biblical times, so did the Pharisees, who made idols out of their traditions that they had created. And so Jesus rebuked them on their false judgments that they cast upon others based on what? Based on a standard that they had created. A standard that, of course, they saw themselves as keepers of. So what would that make them, the Pharisees? Why, in their eyes, they would be the best of men. The irony is, of course, that their judgment was to call out that which they saw as unclean without seeing, of course, the uncleanliness of their own actions. In today's passage, Jesus addresses the underlying matter at hand, the root of where such actions stem from. And the answer is the heart of men. For sin has tainted not our actions, not our bread, not even our hands, if you will, but our hearts. And so all our actions are tainted as a symptom of that heart condition. Jesus points not to that which enters our bodies as being the source of corruption, but rather the very inner core of the human themselves. Let's examine the text. Two points to today's sermon. Firstly, verses 14 to 16, what defiles the man? Secondly, verses 17 to 23, where sin lies. Let's look at the first three verses, 14 to 16, what defiles the man. In these verses, Jesus turns from rebuking the Pharisees on their insistence to judge what is put into the body to teaching his listeners, the crowd, earnestly that the focus ought to rather be on what is already inside the body. Now, of course, we're not talking about the actual beating heart, right? Like, we're not, talking, we're not saying that sin has tainted that, that heart. Heart is, uh, in the Hebrew tradition and in the Jewish tradition, 
representation of our inner core, our inner being, the personhood of who we are. It is not so much a statement that nothing outside the body is corrupt either, right? Jesus is maybe speaking to you in a manner uh, that would be a little bit foreign to us, but when he says that nothing that is, you know, outside of us can defile us, he is not saying that everything outside of us is thus clean, right? He's not saying that these, that everything in this world and everything physical beyond, you know, that which is, that which is within us, that everything outside of us is thus clean because whether you consume it or not doesn't defile you, right? But he's not saying, so listen carefully, that nothing outside the body is corrupt or that nothing that is consumed uh, is incapable of in some way defiling us. It just doesn't mean what he's trying to correct is the understanding that that which we consume does not lead to the inner corruption, right? That the inner corruption is already there and thus we reach out for it. For what do we know? We know that the consumption of certain drugs or alcohol in its overconsumption, to be more precise, can certainly defile us. Or consumption through the eyes, right, of sexual or pornographic material can defile us too. These are exterior or external things that we consume into our bodies and thus it does defile us and corrupt us in, to a certain degree. But not in our inner core. Our inner core is already corrupted. Jesus' point is this, that although there are things that can be consumed that leads to defilement, the real source of defilement itself begins from the inner self, the inside. For what force was at play to lead one to consume that much alcohol or to take in those drugs or to watch that material? In Matthew 5, 27 to 28, Jesus teaches at the Sermon on the Mount that our lust begins from the point of inception in the mind. That it starts from the inside. This is Jesus' point here as well. He is asking where these actions stem from, and the answer is so evidently clear, isn't it? The food that was deemed ceremonially unclean by the Pharisees because the disciples did not wash their hands fails to grasp the meaning and purpose of what's ceremonially clean even intended or meant in the Old Testament. To think that washing our hands is any contribution to spiritual cleanliness would be foolish. It is proper to follow ceremonial practices so long as they are properly understood. And so Jesus reminds us that things that proceed from our inner being is what is truly at work in defiling us. Our actions are outward visible symptoms of a corrupted inner heart. This teaching of Jesus truly points forward to a text. And Mark, you'll see the square brackets in verse 16. This is interesting uh, footnoting by Mark. He rarely does this in his gospel. When he does, it's intended to teach something, right? And what is he pointing at? He says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And then later, he says, thus, in verse 19, at the end of it, thus he declared all foods clean. What is Mark uh, telling us here is that he's pointing, I mean, he's living in that time of the apostles, so he's pointing towards Acts 10, right? And what do we see in Acts 10? Peter will, has a vision in Acts 10 of the Lord telling him what? That now all foods that were once deemed unclean in the eyes of the Jews for consumption by the covenant people of God were now permissible for consumption. That all foods are edible, just as the covenant itself was now, now inclusive of all people as it was meant to be. That the doors have opened, the gates of the covenant have opened to the Gentiles. The new covenant under Christ opened the doors to not simply new cuisines, 
but to new nations, into the covenant relationship with God. The language of unclean and clean that's used by the Jews would no longer be relevant and is no longer relevant, and it has now been replaced with believer and unbeliever. Faith in Christ or not. I'm reminded of Jesus' teaching as well when he says that a good tree will bear good fruit and a bad tree will bear bad fruit. Over time and over season, the believer bears good fruit and the unbeliever will ultimately bear bad fruit. Now, it doesn't mean that when you become a believer that you immediately start looking and acting and behaving and speaking like a mature Christian. That would be irresponsible for us to think of the faith that way. I mean, when you were born into this world as an infant, as a baby, did you act like a human? Did you behave like a human? You didn't even speak like a human. But over time, most of you in this room seem human to me. Right? And so is the journey of maturation in the faith. If someone truly has faith, you know what we ought to have for them? True hope that they will mature. And you could think this person is so far from maturity that's impossible. I dare you to speak to someone like the Apostle Paul. Second point, where sin lies. Verses 17 to 23. The language of Jesus was simple enough, and yet the disciples, right? When you read verses 14 to 16, do you see confusion or hear confusion in any of Jesus' words or teachings? I don't. Right? I didn't see any confusion there, perhaps because of my sort of New Testament perspective. But the language of Jesus, I think, was quite simple enough, and yet the disciples requested in private a proper understanding of the teaching. Now, you might wonder, what? well, it's really simple, disciples. Are you just unintelligible? Like, what's going on? There really isn't a complex parable in the teaching. So then one might ask, or must ask, per se, why they inquire for further understanding. After all, Jesus himself questions whether they are lacking in understanding as well. But remember that the disciples were Jews who grew up in the same traditions as the Pharisees. Perhaps they should have known better to wash their hands before eating the bread. But alas, it seems they were not so great at being a Jew either. I had a friend one time. This is, a, this is just a complete joke, so disregard this from the sermon. But um, I had a friend. I grew up in, like, the Batherson-Lawrence area, so it's, like, fully Jewish neighborhood. Uh, so I had a bunch of Jewish friends. I think I've mentioned this a few times. And um, they weren't good Jews. Like, like, North American Jews are not, like, that great, right, unless they're, like, super orthodox. Um, so the running joke in my, my high school was always, like, Everyone here is like Jewish. You get it? Okay, moving on. But here's an interesting thought from. But here's an interesting thought from theologian William Barclay on his commentary in Mark. Although it may not seem so now, he writes, this passage, the passage we just read today, when it was first spoken was well nigh the most revolutionary passage in the New Testament. That's what Barclay writes. I thought about that for a while. About Tuesday to Wednesday, for 24 hours, I thought about it. I'm like, is this true? 
A lot of New Testament texts, right? A lot of gospel verses. His proposition, although perhaps hyperbolic, is that Jesus is challenging an area of Judaism that was so radical, even the disciples were baffled. Perhaps their inquiry of Jesus on further understanding stemmed more from a position of, certain, Jesus, certainly, that's not what you really meant, right? So tell us what you actually meant. The Jewish diet, the kosher diet, is nothing to us, right? For me being Korean, like the Jewish kosher diet means nothing. I don't hold anything to it, or I don't really get it either. Just see it in the Old Testament. Hey, that was a thing at one time. I don't get it now, right? But to the Jews, their diets were part of their DNA, their way of life, and so closely tied to their religious convictions and their soteriology, their method of salvation, or their means of salvation, being part of a faithful covenant community. And here Jesus challenges that idea in a way that nobody else had before. The understanding that Jesus wants his hearers to know is this, that the human being is not defiled by what goes in him. It is not that which is outside of them that is unclean, and thus upon consumption and entrance into the human body that they are thus made unclean now? No, for that would assume that the human being was clean to begin with. That would suggest a clean bowl that is filled with dirty water, causing the bowl to thus become dirty as well. No, brothers and sisters, the bowl is already dirty, and so even if you put clean water in it, it will contaminate the water. Jesus' proclamation is this, that the man is already unclean because of what, is with, what exists within them. And where does it lie? He points to the heart. For in the heart there is evil and there is corruption of it. When Eve ate the forbidden fruit, the fruit was not created by God as unclean. It was created as good. And thus the physical elements of that fruit, the actual composition of that fruit, did not have any influence in the corruption of the heart of Adam and Eve. The fruit was not created unclean and thus told to them, do not eat that unclean fruit. No, he just said it's forbidden. What was unclean was their disobedience of God and his word. But when it entered Adam and Eve, it did make them sinners, but it wasn't the fruit. It was their sin. And so these actions that the Pharisees are so concerned about should not be judged on the premise of outward action itself, what you see on the outside. But the focus should be set on the heart. One ought to look into what is on the inside in order to understand what is happening on the outside. It does not make the outward better, just because you understand what's going on the inside, but it helps us to paint a better picture, to see that actions are but a symptom of the condition of our hearts. Jesus gives us a list of 13 defilements of our heart, and it's extensive, but it, sorry, it's, it's uh, extensive, but not exhaustive. And it certainly points at the evil that does exist within us all. I'm sure we can relate to all, if not most, of these things that Jesus lists. That last one really hits home, doesn't it? Foolishness. It puts into perspective what Jesus died for on the cross why he was sent. He came not to save us simply from the evil actions that we are doing, but 
the evil that we are at our inner core. The evil that comes out as a result of that core from within us. He didn't die for the evil that is consumed. He died not that the wicked things of this world would be washed away, but he died that the wickedness within us would be washed away. I rewrote this sentence like a hundred times to make sure it's like aligned with Reformed theology. Because <laughs> I was really like scared I would go unbiblical here. Wrote it a hundred times. He died not that the wicked things of this world would be washed away. Specifically use the word things there. He died that the wickedness within us, the sin within us would be washed away. It's a subtle difference, isn't it? Right? And I've pondered, is this true? Is this true? Is this true? And I think it is. For he died for the sins of the elect. You can debate me on that one. Charles Spurgeon speaks on this text in this way, and he writes, The source from which these rivers of pollution proceed is the natural heart of man. Sin is not a splash of mud upon man's exterior. It is a filth generated within himself. Now, if I ended the sermon here, it would be quite depressing because at the end of the day, it's just you're all sinners and you're wicked and you're evil from within. There's an evil core that is just absolutely evil and you're all evil and you're always doing evil and you will do nothing but evil until you die and are in glory. That'd be a great sermon. But, alas, praise God, Holy Spirit inspired me to share something else as well. Church, in conclusion, knowing this, I ask, how we could apply this understanding in a meaningful way, in a positive way. I don't ask this a lot, but something earnestly came upon my heart in reading and studying this passage. Knowing that our outward sins, the action we observe in one another, are symptoms that flow from the evil river that is our heart and condition, I ask you this, what is it that we could do with this understanding that would be honoring, glorifying of God and edifying of one another. Last year, we completed our sermon series on 1 Corinthians. Chapter 8 specifically spoke to us on the purpose of congregational worship and gathering. What we do on the Lord's Day, and every other day for that matter, both here and in the home. I imagine an application of such understanding might look like what I've experienced as a minister for the past 10 years on campus and in the church, because in chapter 8, what it teaches us is that the church gathers to edify. And so if it is not edifying, it ought not to be a part of the congregational service. It ought not. That's why I remember in 1 Corinthians, they ask Paul, hey, is it okay to like have prayer in tongues publicly? People just prophesying randomly in tongues. Is that okay? Is that permissible? Paul's response is, unless there's an interpreter so that we understand what you're saying, no, right? Because it wouldn't edify. It wouldn't help anyone. The purpose of the church gathering, the ecclesia, is so that we edify. It's the question that pressed on my heart this week. So how do we take this understanding and understand it to be a source of edification, or at least a motivation for you, the believer, to move yourself in a direction of edifying others? And so for the past 10 years, 
doing ministry, and I've experienced a lot of things. And I imagine an application of such understanding might look like what the past 10 years for me has looked like on campus and in the church. I've come to realize this, that haste judgment of outward action of others, believers and unbelievers, without patient investigation of inward motive is foolishness. It's foolishness. What do I mean by this? There were many times when I would observe behavior that I deemed sinful or wrong. There were many times that people pointed out to me behavior that they had seen in others that they deemed wrong. And in my youth and in my young age, I would act hastily. I would assume and I would be eager to stop such behavior, thinking that this person was just so out of touch with their faith, they're so distant from Christ, that they needed to be abruptly stopped and rebuked. Perhaps that was the case for some, the thing they needed. But for the majority, what I have learned is this, that every person acts on the basis of some source of motivation or reason. The key is discovering that motivation and understanding. Yes, of course, ultimately it's the heart and it's the evil corruption of our hearts, but there's always something that's going on in their life. Where is this action coming from? Paint, brothers and sisters, a better and bigger picture of why something is happening in someone's life before you point fingers and question. Before you look at them and say, why do you eat that bread without cleaning your hands first? The better question to ask is this, are you okay? Is there anything going on in your life that I could pray for? How are you doing, brother and sister? What is on your heart? I look back now and I have so many regrets about not doing this. So many faces and names that I regret. I didn't have just the momentary thoughtfulness to consider that they're just like me. That when they sin, they know they're sinning. That when they're sinning, and they know that they're sinning, that they are in a state of regret. That they go home and weep. That they go home and realize the darkness of their lives. That there is hurt and pain and anguish and there's a cry for help and there's no one reaching out and helping them. And all they face is judgment. Dig deeper. Be better. Go to the heart. This is, that is how we build each other up. Look around in this room. When you see something so egregious and your exclaim to them is, I can't believe they did that. Why on earth would they do that? Why are they like that? Stop. Breathe and ask. I wonder if that person needs is there something going on in their life? And in the end, that may still lead you to rebuke. That may still lead you to correcting and helping them in that sin. But brothers and sisters, it's far better to get to the heart, for it will lead you to love them. I had an interview at a co-op placement in high school. And in that interview, my employer asked me this question. If someone stole your work in the office and you caught them, what would you do? I told them, well, I would address, I would, I would address it with them, approach them, talk to them about it, and if they don't stop, I would let the manager know, right? So I'd go up to them and be like, hey, stop stealing my work. I don't appreciate it. And then if they keep doing it, I would tell my manager. The interviewer said this, 
Max, that's a great answer. Pretty much protocol. You're following the book. You know what's best. Um, or you know what you're supposed to do. But do you know what the best answer I have ever heard to this question is? And I said, no, of course. <laughs> and this is what he said. I once interviewed a young lady. And her answer to me to this question was this. Well, if they're stealing my work, maybe they just need some help. I would ask them if they need help. Isn't that amazing? To which I said to him, yeah, that is an amazing answer. Brother and sister, in light of what Christ has done for us through his death on the cross, paying the penalty of all sins of all believers having covered it all by his blood no sin is not covered for the believer then our our diligence and effort ought to be in the building up of one another not the tearing down we correct to build we help each other to build and we love one another to build. My hope and prayer is that we would be this type of church. So may we be such a community. Let's take a moment to pray and reflect on what God has taught us this afternoon. Let's rise from our seats and sing together in response to God's word and teaching.
us today to live out this week in honor and glory of your name. Thank you for reminding us of the importance of recognizing that really sin lies at the depth of our hearts, that we are wicked from within, and all things that we do stem from that wickedness and that corruption that has defiled us from the moment of the fall. But God, that's not the end of the story. For us, we see Christ, and we see him as Savior and Lord. For he died for us, and because of that, we have hope in knowing that no matter how corrupt we are, no matter how defiled we may seem, that if we put our faith in Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior, and we live for him in honor of him, that one day we will be with him in eternity forever, in glory, in glorified state, where we will sin no more. And praise your holy name for that, God, for we need you so. We give you, Lord Father, this offering. And we ask that this offering would be used in this church and for this church, for its growth and its continual ministry in the lives of believers and for evangelistic efforts to those who do not yet know or believe. We thank you for the provision that you give to us in life. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to zip through some announcements as we conclude our time for today, and then we can head out and enjoy some food and wonderful weather together. First and foremost, welcome to Sheepgate, all of you. Um, those of you who are perhaps newcomers or haven't seen you in a while, welcome back. And newcomers, welcome. We'd like to get to know you. Uh, for those of you who are unable to be with us and have to join us online, we welcome you as well. Offerings can be sent two ways. So basket in the back with envelope, please indicate your legal name. Make sure it gets allocated towards your account. And then of course, through e-transfer, you can give to sheepgatefellowship at gmail.com. Uh, we are in consideration at this moment of supporting one more missionary in Asia Minor. Uh, his name is John, I won't, won't go beyond that. But um, yeah, we just wanna kinda hear his story before we begin supporting him as a church. Um, and just supporting his efforts. Uh, he just joined staff with Clay on his uh, team locally working in, uh, in, the, in, in Ankara right now. So uh, yeah, just keep them in prayer and uh, we're hoping to visit him next summer. So that's exciting. Um, please join us for fellowship and food following service at our other building. If you need a ride, please let us know. Food is ready and we're ready to, I'm sure you're all ready to eat. Uh, Confessions chapter nine continues. We're actually completing chapter nine today uh, on free will. We'll be reading 9.4 and 9.5 to conclude our time uh, in the ninth chapter. So please have that ready as soon as service ends. We'll give a you know two or three minute break for washrooms and then we'll gather together in groups of four or five again, uh, just people around you and uh, just have a time uh, where we can uh, spend together in, in, uh, in, in the confessions. And so please join us for that. Uh, visitations have begun. Um, I've, most of you haven't signed up, but if can be great. Um, so I've sent a document and a link. I'll resend it. Uh, someone asked me, are visitations mandatory? No, they're not mandatory. But um, they're like very highly prescribed and recommended, um, especially for newcomers. I'd love to hear your faith journey, uh, get to know you a little bit more on that level. Uh, it's really uh, a benefit for you and a benefit for me in the sense that I can have a better understanding. My fear is one day our church will be so big that I cannot um, even connect with you on that level, and I just don't want that. And so while we're in the state that we are in now, 
uh, I would love to just interact with all of you on that kind of level and, and for you to also interact with me and get to know me as well. Could be a little daunting. I know when I was younger, I didn't really want to spend time with my pastor or my ministers or anything like that. Uh, but hopefully I'm not like so awkward that uh, we can do that. Uh, but yeah, you can certainly group up. Um, so if you like to group up with like one or two other people that are, those of you who don't have like your household here, um, yeah, you can just group up in pairs or in groups of three and uh, we can definitely meet you there. And again, if you're able to invite me into the home and we're able to share a meal together in that context, I'd love to do that. If not, we can certainly meet outside. Um, and newcomers, first time visitation people, free meal on me. So um, just keep that in mind. Okay, zipping through these, CrossCon. So CrossConference is January 3rd to 5th. So you're gonna have to take that whole week off because of travel time. Uh, church will be paying for your ticket price. We need a minimum of 10 signups. I think we're very close, if not at 10 now. Uh, so I'm gonna be purchasing the first set of tickets soon. Uh, so I'll give a deadline for this. Uh, let's say end of July will be the first deadline. And then after that, uh, I might charge you like 10 bucks or something like that. So you know, just some kind of incentive, right? Um, but other than that, you have to pay for your accommodation, your food, and your travel costs. Uh, if we drive there, I think an estimate is like 400 bucks, four or $500 if we have 10 people. It's not too bad, right? If we just book like a whole Airbnb house and we're pretty much good to go. It's Louisville, Kentucky. It's not expensive, all right? Um, so just keep that in mind. Uh, retreat team. So uh, we have two so far on the retreat team. We need about six. All right, um, so if you are willing to help out with any of that, um, you're gonna have to talk to Jess about this. Jess has been voluntold to recruit this team. She is, refuses to lead it, uh, so she won't. Um, now, I've been like, I'm gonna deny that of her now. If she asks to lead this team, I'm gonna be like, no. Uh, but if anyone else would like to lead the team, you can certainly take over that. But we